This morning we continue our series called Standing in the Storm as we are looking at the book of 1 Peter together. I made a guarantee at the beginning of this series, a guarantee that I, you know, I never would make unless I was confident that I could make it, and that is every Christian at one time or another is going to go through difficulty, trials, tribulations, and troubles. At one time or another, as it's been said, and I think very aptly, it's been said that a Christian's either usually coming out of a trial, going into a trial, or in a trial. Uh, Difficulties just come alongside Christianity perfectly. And it's no strangers to those in the early church. Peter wrote this entire letter to encourage those who were suffering under a great wave of persecution. The persecution was an edict set out by Caesar Nero that Christians should be uh, gathered and and arrested and their materials uh, taken from them, seized from them. Some of them were to be put into prison and some of them were even to be executed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter is writing this letter to Christians who are in the region of Asia Minor. Many of these are Jewish individuals who then became Christians at the uh, time of Pentecost at Acts chapter 2. And now they are faced with persecution and they find themselves in a position of vulnerability. Anytime a Christian faces difficulty, it often challenges their fundamental faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter wanted to encourage, he wanted to solidify them, he wanted them to stand and firm in the grace of God, 1 Peter 5.12. And so he's writing this letter to them that we have been working through together here on Sunday morning, and we come to chapter 3. And as we come to chapter 3, let us remember that what we are about to read is in the context of a letter written for this purpose that we had just stated. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. When we read the Bible, let us understand that there is a historical context that must be taken into consideration 
for a proper interpretation and understanding of what the writer's intentions were. Today in our church in America, under the umbrella of being relevant, we have taken the Bible from its historical context to what I call a cultural context. When I was uh, interviewed on the Calvary Radio Network, they asked me what I believed was one of my greatest concerns for the church today, and I brought to their attention what I call the cultural contextualization of the Bible. It is the removal of the Bible from its original historical context and brought into our culture and therefore being misapplied, misunderstood, and misinterpreted. And this is something that is happening across the board. And I have seen books written uh, on biblical passages that remove the passage from its historical context. And therefore, it loses its meaning and flavor. And a different context is applied to it. Uh, They take the word of God and they manipulate it. They read into it rather than reading from it what its original intention was meant to be. Let me give you an example. If I were to say to you, and you don't have any understanding of history, let us go back to 1941. And if I were to say to you, the Japanese people visited Hawaii in December of 1941. A cultural context interpretation of that would be The Japanese people came and they surfed and they had a luau and they enjoyed the beaches and they uh, maybe did some, you know, uh, recreational activities of some sort. But you and I know that the historical context of that is that the Japanese people came and bombed Pearl Harbor, right? Here's a phrase that is taken out of its historical context and placed in a cultural context. Let me give you another one. This one's even uh, closer to our reality. Uh, The Chicago Cubs went to Cleveland and got the job done in 2016. Now, some may just say, well, they went to Cleveland. They got whatever job they had done. And it was in 2016. You and I know that that means that they won the World Series after a 100-year drought. And I, as a Cubs fan, can no longer be ridiculed for not winning a World Series. This is the difference. And you can see from those quaint examples how radically different your idea of understanding uh, and interpretation of those sentences can be based upon your understanding of history. Now, unfortunately, in the United States of America, we don't put a lot of emphasis on history in our educational system any longer. In fact, a lot of the history in, edu- in our educational system is revised history, unfortunately. And you see this when you... See, for example, uh, entertainers such as Jay Leno going out and doing the interview of the man in the street. And he says, what decade did the uh, um, Vietnam War end? And they say 1940. And it's like, whoops, you know, and so forth. Or what's the longest river in the United States? The Nile. (laughs) What, what, What school did you go to? And so forth. 
And you see the disconnect. The historical understanding of the Bible is key crucial to understanding its proper interpretation and therefore its application. To take it into our culture unnecessarily or presumptuously will distort its original meaning. So you ask, well, how can I discover the original historical understanding? Well, there's a lot of great books out there, but often the text itself will lend itself to you and share with you what's going on in that time. For example, in the letter of 1 Peter, it is shared over 20 times that he's writing to suffering people. So therefore, we just need to understand what that suffering is at the hand of and do a little bit of research, a little bit of work. And again, we are so blessed with information in our, in our culture today, in our society today. It's just a matter of accessing that information and, and doing a little bit of work. And there's some great books that have been written along these lines that are completely accessible to the lay people of the church and should be utilized by everyone to help us understand the historical context of the Bible. Now, why do I say all of this? You thought, well, I didn't know I was going to go to seminary today. Why are we talking about all of this? Because we are entering into a portion of 1 Peter that is often taken out of its historical understanding and brought into a cultural understanding. And ladies, I want to apologize to you for the manner in which this text has often been used to berate you into some kind of conformity, to think that your uh, piety in the manner in which you dress is so important unto God that your salvation depends on it. Let me be clear. Peter is writing to people who are about to suffer. He begins our text with the word likewise that indicates that he is still in the same train of thought that he was just previous to what he is writing here. So we need to understand what Peter is trying to say and how he is saying it to us to understand its application for us today. As these people were about to suffer under the hands of persecution, he wanted them to be innocent as Christ was innocent before his persecutors so that their consciences would be pricked and understanding that what they were doing was wrong. In fact, Pilate himself was taken back by the incredible understanding of the innocence of Jesus Christ, was he not? Was he not perplexed by it? Didn't it uh, eat at him night and day? It was something that was uh, truly working on the conscience of this man. His wife said, you don't want anything to do with this man, Jesus. Let him go. Paul the Apostle, known as Saul in the book of Acts, held the jackets of those individuals who stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the book of Acts. And I believe it was Peter's, I'm sorry, Stephen's example of his death that led Paul to consider that Christianity might be the truth. And so Peter is preparing these people. Let me give you a couple examples. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's back up for just a moment. 
He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's desire was for these Christians to be witnesses in the opportunity that they were going to experience under the hand of suffering to be a light unto the darkness to that pagan world to show that their God was the one true God. Just as you and I should view our difficulties, our trial, troubles, and tribulations not as obstacles keeping us from a certain level or a standard of life, but we should look at them as opportunities to be lights in the darkness to the worlds around us. You know, I think of the ministry of Joni Erickson Tata, who absolutely believes she would never have the ministry she has unless she would have had that accident and been paralyzed as such. She took the difficulties that she had and allowed them to become an opportunity for the glory of God. And look at how she has blessed the body of Christ with her her ministry. And Peter wants these individuals also to be lights in the darkness and in the model of Jesus Christ. Verse 21 of chapter 2, if you will. Let us forward to there. As it is written, for to this you have been called, he says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That by his wounds you have been healed. For you were strayed like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Christ, the ultimate example. And Peter then begins in chapter 2 by writing to those and, so, and writes to them, this is how I would have you submit to governing authorities. Those who are servants, these are, uh, this is how I would have you live within the authority of those in whom you are in servants to. And then he comes to wives and to husbands. Again, a structure of authority. God's design for marriage, Paul articulates clearly for us in Ephesians chapter 5, that I as the husband have have been given the responsibility of leading my family here in this time on this earth. That I am the one that God holds responsible for the well-being, the spiritual health of my family. He He has called me to love my wife as Jesus Christ loves the church. And he has called my wife to submit unto me a 
a word that we have really truly no understanding of. We have made it a word that is looked down upon. We have made it a word of, sub, uh, of a subservient position. And that's not what Paul was writing at all. He was saying, honor and respect the authority that I have given your husband in the marriage relationship. And I ask you now to submit to that authority because it is I who have given it to him. And for him to be able to lead, you must be willing to follow. Now, with that all being said, why does Peter then move us into addressing the wives of these individuals in these circumstances, in these regions and areas? Well, that's a great question, and that's the question we're going to answer for you today. Some believe that he began with the wives because, well, they were the most troublesome. They were just causing great difficulties amongst the people and they were not submitting onto their husbands as they should. And then Peter then writes this stern warning to them, reminding them of the uh, relationship with the husband that is proper before God. And I would say that is absolutely, positively incorrect. For Dr. Craig Keener, aptly describes and historically articulates for us that the reason that Peter began with the wives is because the wives of the families in these areas were getting saved first. For it was much more difficult for the husband, the man, to leave one faith and go to another. As a Jewish man becoming a Christian, he now saw and understood that he was going to be severing his ties, not only with his family, but also with his work associates and so forth, those in whom he uh, depends upon, networks upon, etc. Everything could be in jeopardy if he became a Christian and left Judaism. If he was a pagan, and I use that word for the Gentile community, and he was one who worshipped many gods, him converting to Christianity would take him from the understanding of a polytheistic understanding of God, that there are many gods, to a monotheistic understanding of God. And therefore, he would not be able to submit to to the edicts of Rome and see and understand the emperor Caesar to be a deity. For in all of the regions in which Peter wrote this letter to, there were temples that were constructed onto Caesar Nero to allow him to be worshipped as, what? The Son of God. That's interesting. In fact, the coins that we have from that time said Son of God on the back of them to indicate who Caesar Nero thought he was. This was a huge, this was huge because if the man could no longer worship a multiplicity of gods, do you know what he would be called by his society? And this is kind of interesting. He would be charged with becoming an atheist because you were denying all but one God. And in that culture, that constituted atheism. And it's something that they could be charged with. So as these women who seemed to be more receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ were getting saved, and I have often seen that to be the pattern in our society too, where the wives will get saved and they'll start earnestly praying for their husbands and then the husbands will get saved, the kids will get saved, and God does a great work. 
This was a, uh, Peter is writing to these ladies out of necessity. And then he begins, and he says to these wives, be subject or submit yourself to your own husbands. It wasn't to every husband. I could not go into your home and say to your wife, make me a sandwich. She has every right to say to me, make your own sandwich, (laughs) you know. In fact, I don't even think I would go into my home and just start barking to my wife, make me a sandwich, even though she would be so willing to do so. I don't think I would treat her in that way, you know. But it is to your own husbands that God calls you to be subjected or submissive to. So that even if some do not obey the word, this isn't conditional, this instruction. It is not conditioned upon them also being a believer. The term not obeying the word indicates that these individuals may not be saved and most likely are not. Even if they do not obey the word, Peter says, look at what he says here, your submissiveness, your subjection to them, that they may be one, one to what? One to Christ, one to the gospel, without a word by the conduct of their wives. So when they see your respectful and pure conduct, they may be one to Christ. What an extraordinary thing. He then goes on to the portion of the text that is often removed from its historical context. Let us remember that he is writing to people who are about to suffer great persecution. He is mentioning wives first because they seem to have gotten saved, received the gospel first before their husbands have. He is now instructing them to submit unto their husbands even if their husbands do not obey the Lord and do so for the purpose of winning their husbands to the Lord through their respectful and pure conduct. I think that is very clear to us. Verse 3, though. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit which in God's sight is very precious. (laughs) Oh boy. There has been a lot of discussion about this portion of Scripture along with that of 1 Timothy chapter 2 concerning the manner in which women are to adorn themselves, what is proper and what is improper. Now, let me ask you a question. We are reading through 1 Peter. We're reading it as an entire letter. We've studied it verse by verse up until this point. We see the purpose of it. He's writing to people who are about to suffer in great persecutions. He's asking them to stand 
in the grace of God. So they weather the storm that they could be lights into the darkness. And then in the middle of all of this, he says, oh, and by the way, wait a minute. The women are dressed really inappropriately. Does that sound right? Does that sound like that flows through the letter in the manner in which it should? No. The reason for this is because many have made the minor point the major point and the major point the minor point. The minor point is the adorning of the external. The major point is the eternal adorning. That's what Peter is focusing on. He is focusing on the inward and not the outward. For women in that culture to gain attention from others around them would adorn themselves in incredibly, and I'm going to use this word, hideous ways. Hideous. I thought that during the 1980s, hair on the girls' heads couldn't get any taller. But in that culture, sometimes they could literally be two and a half to three feet tall. Okay, I mean, look out for, you know, I mean, low-flying birds at that point. Oh, the 60s. Well, the 80s were pretty uh, overdoing it, too. I don't remember the 60s very well. I was born in 68, so uh, I'll take your word for it. They adorn themselves with jewelry, and we're not talking about a, 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 a nice ring or a, a nice bracelet or a nice necklace. We're talking about jewelry. Uh, I think the word for it today would be bling. Lots and lots and lots and lots of bling. When it came to makeup, okay, they had a whole different idea. I think they used a a power sprayer and a roller at that point, okay? It was extreme. It was exaggerated. It was completely for the purpose of gaining notice from others around you, okay? And the women of the higher of society, the aristocrats, they would model these things. Those who could afford it would then mirror that, just like we do today, and so forth. And Peter is saying to them, listen, I am releasing you from that stereotype. I am releasing you from that social bondage. I am releasing you from all of that. That's not what's important to God. That's not what's important to your husband. And I'll talk about more of that in a minute. But when it comes to passages like this, let me tell you what has occurred in in churches across America. And let me help you understand that passages like this have led individuals to believe that they have become the fashion police of the Christian community. And they are simply there to determine if women are wearing the proper clothes at the proper time for the proper things. And that's not what Peter was talking about here. So they'll turn my attention to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, historical context tells us that he is writing, Paul is writing to these people, and I'll read it for you so you don't have to take time to get there. In verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable peril, 
with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. With good works, let a woman learn quietly and in all submissiveness. What is Paul saying there? The prayer meetings became a joke. Men would start arguing within them. The very first line tells us that the men would start quarreling within the prayer meetings over maybe the manner in which another person prayed or whatever it may be. And women were using it as a social gathering to gather notice and attention onto themselves and they adorned themselves in such ways. Paul did not go on to say, therefore, certain ladies of the church must then now become the fashion police and critique everybody else who is coming in after them. When I was an assistant pastor, we ran into this issue. This is going back some time now at another church. And one of the elders' wives became very critical of every young person that was coming in that wasn't dressed to her particular standards. Now, these young women were getting saved left and right. God was doing a great work. And none of them were dressed inappropriately. And uh, none of them were, were being, uh, uh, you know, uh, irreverent to church or anything. But in this particular woman's mind, they were all very offensive. And she would make it her point to go up to each one and start correcting them. And I grew very concerned by this as one of the pastors of the church. And I brought it to the senior pastor's attention. I think this is problematic. When we discussed it with her and her husband, we discovered that at the time she was pregnant and she was very self-conscious of others when she felt that her husband was going to start looking at other women rather than her and that she felt it necessary to correct everybody else to keep her husband in line. The problem isn't with the women, the problem's with her and her husband. We can't do this. This is not what the Bible is saying. Now, should we wear appropriate attire at appropriate times, sure. You know, I'm not going to wear a tuxedo in a swimming pool, right? But again, let us understand that when this word respectable is used in Timothy or in the New King James, it's with modest apparel. Is modest a subjective term or not? It is, of course. But Paul is saying that take that subjectivity and apply it to the circumstances. And therefore, it'll make sense. Please, if you're coming to a prayer meeting, the guys are already quarreling about things. Ladies, adorn yourself in a proper attire for the purpose of praying together. And I think we can all understand that. It's reasonable, right? And so forth. But going back to Peter, he was preparing these women for the persecution that was coming. And he said, listen, don't feel obligated to pursue the manner in which the women adorn themselves in that culture for the purpose of getting noticed. If you want to get noticed, then you have a quiet and peaceful spirit and conduct yourself in respect and you will get noticed. Now, this isn't only a mandate from the Lord. It's also something in that Roman Greco world that was highly respected at the time. A a woman who carried herself in class 
And Peter's saying, this is what I would have for you to do so that when your persecutors come and they look to persecute you for your Christian faith, their conscience is, is pierced because they see, oh, this is a good person. This is, this is a classy person. She honors her husband. She respects him. She's a classy individual. Peter is trying to diffuse that point of persecution. He's trying to write to them and he's trying to set upon them the true value of the inner beauty of an individual that we so often in our culture mock, right? We say to someone, oh, but it's the inner beauty that counts. We're basically saying to them, well, yes, you are ugly, but maybe you got this going for you. But is it true? No, it's not true. Today, I am having a daughter, as I do, who just now went to college, and having her grow up under the pressures of the social stigmas that are around her, thinking that she has to look like this and present herself like this and so on and so forth. The standard became so unrealistic that unless you weighed 98 pounds, you were considered overweight. You know, it became ridiculous. And then we found out that all of these photography uh, photographers and these pictures of these women who became the standard of society were all doctored by airbrushing. It was a lie. And Peter's absolutely bringing them out of that kind of bondage. And that kind of subjection. He says, no, it's before the Lord that's important. And I I feel blessed because I look at my wife each and every day and she is one of the classiest people that I know. And I'm just, and she's also gorgeous. So I, I won twice. But the point of the matter is, is that there's such a, a deep respect and honor that when you see a classy person like that, who carries themselves in such dignity. And that dignity is often found in that respectful, pure conduct, that quiet and gentle spirit before the Lord, which in the sight of God is precious. And therefore, undoubtedly, we can understand that in the sight of the world, it is considered useless. And in verse 5, For this is how, and then Peter moves to an example of a heroine of the Old Testament. And this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. One of the reasons I believe that these were Jewish individuals who became Christians is because of the Old Testament usages here in Peter's writing their familiarity that they would have had with Sarah, I think, indicates this also. They would have had to be familiar with the story of Sarah and Abraham from the book of Genesis to understand the class in which Sarah conducted herself. Does this mean that Sarah was always perfect or that Abraham was always perfect? No, not at all. Not at all. When the Lord came and said that she was going to have a son, she laughed She laughed at it. When Abraham was confronted by the authorities of Egypt, he lied concerning Sarah's true identity and said it was his sister. These aren't perfect people, but they were examples of class. And what God esteemed highly in the manner in which Sarah conducted herself with Abraham. 
which was also acceptable in that culture at that time and was highly praised. And therefore, Peter continues and he says, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you would be like her, if you do good. And then he says this very interesting thing that helps us with the historical context. And do not fear anything that is frightening. What would he mean by that? Well, what's coming? The difficulties that would arise. The word fear there is used in the Subtuagent, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament in a proverb, Proverbs 3, 25 and 26, and I'll read it to you. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, the, the writer of Proverbs states, or the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. This terror. You can imagine a woman in that society, you know that she struggled as a lower social class than men already. Peter's saying, now be respectful and be in pure conduct to your husband, which will gain the admiration of the people around you, including those who persecute you. But do not be afraid. As Sarah did not fear, you do not fear. Trust the Lord for what is about to come. If she was going to be successful in winning her lost husband to the Lord, if persecution came and he saw her persecuted and she handled it in a manner of peace rather than in a manner of worry and fear, he would see the reality of her God at that moment. He would see that there was something extraordinary about her faith and be further convinced of its authenticity. And as Sarah did when she was told that, you know, called Abraham's sister and taken into the bridal chambers of the Pharaoh of, of Egypt at that time and so forth, was not afraid but trusted God. So you should do the same. The inner beauty of a godly woman is incorruptible. It can never be changed. It can only grow. This means that it does not decay or get worse with age. Instead, incorruptible beauty only gets better with age. And there is therefore much greater value than the beauty that comes from the hair, jewelry, or clothing of the moment, the temporal time. When he talks about that gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Peter describes the character of true beauty, as one wrote. A gentle and quiet spirit, that is. The character traits that are not promoted for women by our culture today, yet are very precious in the sight of God. This is what Peter is writing. You don't need to adorn yourself with these things that these women unfortunately feel is the only way that they can draw attention onto themselves. You live and conduct yourself in this classy manner before a fallen world, before your uh, lost husband, and God finds that precious, and it will be a light unto the darkness. That's what he is saying here. That's what he wants us to understand from this text. 
As Peter wrote, he said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite pastors, he, he says he finds four articulations here in these six verses. He first would ask that the wives analyze your actions. Number two, he says, watch your adornment. Not that it would be of the external only, but of the internal more importantly. He is not prohibiting a wearing of jewelry or wearing apparel. Now, some of your Bibles, let me give you an example. This is funny. Some of your Bibles may say, don't, you know, uh, or a putting on of your fine apparel. Well, the word fine is not in the Greek. It's used to indicate what type of apparel it is. So it actually says, and do not put on apparel. You want to gain attention? Walk into some place without apparel. Do you see that? That's not what he's writing. That's not what he's saying, you know. Uh, that would be inappropriate. <laughs> that's where we, we, we draw the line, you know. Uh, that, that would be one where we'd say, listen, uh, there is a problem here. We're going to have you talk to some of the ladies of the church right away. <laughs> um, but, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that it's not... He's not saying don't fix your hair. He's not saying don't put on some jewelry. He says don't let it be the only avenue of beauty that you have. Don't let that be the vessel in which you use to get yourself noticed with everybody else around. Don't let that be the sole identity of your character. Let it be that class of following Christ. That's what he is saying here. Husbands. Oh, let me finish. I'm sorry. Before we get to you, you thought you were off the hook. Check your attitude. Number three is uh, verse four. Wives, check your attitude. How are you interacting with your husband and so forth? Are you taking advantage of this opportunity? Are you submissive unto him? And number three, four, evaluate your attentions. Keep them on Christ. I think these are very, very good for us, but let's get to the husbands now. He writes to the wives first because they're getting saved, but their husbands were there too. Husbands were also getting saved. And here he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. To live with means to dwell with them in intimate relationship. It's it's more personable than just simply living with them as roommates, living with them, or simply getting along with them. I'm living with her. I tolerate her. That's not what he's saying. And not only are we to dwell in an intimate relationship, we are to understand the individual makeup of our wives. We are to understand them personally and who they are in Christ. We need to know their strengths, their weaknesses. We need to know what causes them fear and what causes them to rejoice. We, it's much more uh, than just knowing their favorite food or their favorite color. It's knowing them so intimately that they don't even have to say anything to you. They can just look at you across the room with their eyes and you just know what they're thinking. I've got my wife down pat. You know, if we're somewhere and she goes, it means it's time to go. 
if I see her and she goes, I mean, stop talking. Let's go. <laughs> I just know Dina so well that I just I can look at her. I know when she's sad. I know when she's happy. I know when she needs my attention. I know when uh, she uh, is there for me. I just know her so intimately and so well. And that's what Peter is calling the us as husbands to do. Peter was a husband himself, and he loved his wife. His wife often went on ministry journeys with him. They had many kids, the historians tell us. But he cherished his wife. He loved his wife very much so. And he is writing from his own personal experience. He says a godly husband will seek to understand his wife's moods and feelings and needs, fears and hopes. And he will listen to her with his heart and demonstrate love and simulate joy. And stimulate joy. To honor her as the weaker vessel, showing her honor, that is respect, as the weaker vessel. Again, this has often been used to say that women in some way are inferior, inferior to men, but that's not what Peter is writing. He understands that her makeup, her physical makeup, is weaker than his. Now, Peter was a burly guy. Historians tell us he was a big guy. He was a strong guy. He was a fisherman. It says that all the disciples were trying to pull in the nets. They could not do it. Peter says, get out of the way, grab the net himself, and pulled it in all by himself. He was a big guy. So looking at his wife, he looked at her tenderly. And seeing that she was a weaker vessel, it was up to him to support her when need be. Not that she was, you know, uh, not that she was inferior to him, not that she was, you know, a lower class of him. And trust me, there are some women who are stronger than I am. Trust me, we're not talking about just a physical aspect, but he saw her as that, and when needed, he should be there for her. The phrase weaker vessel is interpreted in different ways, but perhaps Peter was reminding the husbands that wives are usually physically weaker than their husbands and should be uh, assisted by them when needed. You know, you see her lugging the garbage down, you know, and she's struggling with it. And she's dragging it because she can't lift it. It would probably be the beneficial if we got up and assisted her and did it for her instead of saying, look at great workout. You can quit the gym now and we'll save some money. I think it would be much more suitable to get up and to help. Secondly, but also that some wives can be broken by the pressures and responsibilities of life although this happens to some men also. Most likely he is calling on husbands to be understanding of their wives' weaker position as ones called to submit to them. I think of it this way, as David laid out there, and he said to the Lord, who are you to be mindful of man? Knowing our weaknesses, knowing how we fail and fall and so forth, Let us dwell and live with our wives with understanding. Let us see them as God sees them, showing them honor as the weaker vessel, understanding their needs and so forth. Why? Because since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, meaning spiritually they are not inferior to what we are as men before God. 
just a different role, a different position in which God would have them to serve and to be uh, submitted to. So that your prayers may not be hindered. When one struggles in their prayer lives as a man who is married, I often will ask, how is your marriage? Are you treating your wife as Christ would have you to treat her? Are you supporting her? Are you assisting her? Because that's where it all starts. And Peter says here that this would hinder the prayers of an individual. Some believe that it simply means the conscience of one is so that they cannot pray before God because of their guilt. Others believe that it's because God will not listen because the husbands fail to honor the wives the way God has to honor them. That's what I hold to because of the book of Malachi. I'll let you read that on yourself in the manner of the way that God speaks of the wife of the youth. Peter again was desiring to prepare these people for the coming persecution. And this is how he saw fit to do it. When we read the Bible, let us understand that it's 2,000 years removed from us today, but we can still understand it for what God would have for us. Ladies, I hope you understand how valuable you are to the body of Christ. And I will say that as your pastor, that I believe we have some of the most classy Christian ladies in the body of Christ within our church. And I respect you greatly and highly. And I hope that your husbands respect you also for who you are. But if they do not know the Lord and they do not give you that respect, then know that God would have you continue to do what you're doing for the purpose of of winning them to him. And let us close by reading again verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 of Peter. Because I believe this sums it up as bookends. Beloved, I urge you again as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation.